Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Free, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And today we'll be talking about uh, clinical research. And the landscape for clinical research is evolving with many sponsors looking to leverage technology to address inefficiencies in the traditional site-based clinical trial process and counter the rising cost of developing new therapies. Uh, The FDA has looked favorably on technology-enabled and decentralized clinical trial models even prior to COVID, but the pandemic has led to broader adoption of these technologies and models, clearing the way for technology companies to continue disrupting the industry at greater scale. And in our view, technology holds the potential to address some longstanding issues in research, including a lack of accessibility and diversity, and may pave way to a, a convergence of clinical care and research. And to explore this topic and more, I'm joined by David Fishbach, founder and principal of Excel Executive Business Advisors, which provides corporate strategy, operations, and leadership development for technology, life sciences, and healthcare. David's career has included past leadership experience with many of the leading technology companies that serve the biopharma industry, including Viva Systems, Oracle Health Services, and Phase Forward. So David, thanks uh, for joining me today. Charles, thanks very much. It's good to talk to you again. I appreciate you being here. So, you know, David, I wanted to maybe start going back a little bit into your background and and maybe just ask a question, you know, so, how, you know, how did you find yourself uh, here in, in, the, in, in this industry, the biopharm industry? Yeah, thanks for asking, Charles. So, you know, I... Uh, started my career in mechanical and aerospace engineering and actually had pretty traditional engineering roles for the first eight years or so. But right around the turn of the millennium, all of my buddies were joining software startups. So I thought, oh, this sounds like it could be interesting. And I you know, started asking around and looking for opportunities. And I ended up meeting uh, Dr. Paul Bleicher. Uh, and Paul was the founding CEO and visionary of a pioneering company called Phase Forward. Uh, we were doing what now would be called cloud-based Uh, software systems for uh, the testing of pharmaceutical products and medical device products and drug and medical device safety. So I wasn't a founder, but I was pretty early and uh, got to experience the phenomenon of compressed experience that you get in the startup world. So, uh, you know, that really set me on a different path. Uh, I was at Phase Forward for a little more than 10 years uh, through our IPO and through I think eight or nine acquisitions and operational and cultural integrations, some of which we did better than others. Uh, And then in 2010, we sold to Oracle. Uh, So then I was part of Oracle Health Sciences for three years uh, until leaving Oracle to go to another life sciences SaaS company called Viva Systems, which uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with Viva. And I was brought there to build up the uh, North American professional services team as Viva moved into serving the pharmaceutical development side of their uh, biopharmaceutical customer base. Uh, So, you know, again, not a founder, but another IPO. And uh, now since 2015, I've had my own consultancy in this space. So at this point, uh, you know, my teams and I over the years have put our hands uh, on technology, software services and support for literally thousands of clinical trials and throughout the spectrum of pharmaceutical development and commercialization. And uh, it's a fascinating space. It's, uh, it's, it's one I have no plans to leave anytime soon. Yeah, that's, a, that's pretty interesting. That's amazing. Um, you know, uh, maybe, maybe jump back, uh, face forward. Um, you kind of mentioned uh, today we look at that cloud-based, uh, you know, cloud-based platform, you know, maybe if we back up, at that time, you know, how, how did the industry run? You know, how were clinical trials uh, and the data, you know, collected and uh, processed uh, relative today? Yeah, it's a great question, Charles, and one that folks don't really spend a lot of time on uh, in, in recent years. So, you know, back before we were using cloud-based systems for this, uh, what would happen is uh, there would be a protocol, which this is still true, that describes 
to the health agencies, the US FDA or its sister agencies around the world, what we're going to test, how we're going to test it, what we're looking for, how we're going to protect the patient volunteers, what measurements we're going to take. And then the pharmaceutical company or the contract research organization uh, supporting it would provide paper case report forms in literal triplicate with literal carbon. And you would write height, weight, blood pressure, or the patient's you know, answers to a quality of life questionnaire, whatever information you're collecting. And it would be filled out in triplicate and you would keep one and you would um, take the other two and stuff them in a FedEx envelope or, you know, UPS or uh, DHL, I don't mean to play favorites. And then, you know, you'd wait till you had enough of them and then you'd send them to the pharmaceutical company. Then at the pharmaceutical company or CRO, there would be what was called double data entry. And so people would take the case report form that had been filled out, two different people in two different rooms at two different times would transcribe it into software called a clinical data management system. If they both typed the same thing, then the assumption was there was no transcription error and the data would move forward into, into cleaning. And so when we say data cleaning, and again, this is something that still is done as well, you're looking for data that don't make sense so that you can make sure that your data are worthy of trust and analysis before analyzing them. So if, for example, you had a 37 degree Fahrenheit body temperature or you know a patient that was listed as both pre pregnant and male, then it's likely that a transcription error was made. And you can do more complex checks, such as seeing that a patient has uh, a history of heart disease, but no heart medication listed in their concomitant medications. And so this whole process of having the physician and her staff write down on the case report forms the information that they gather during the patient's visit, send it into the pharmaceutical company, do the double AD entry, do the data checks. If something doesn't look right, you know, 37 degree Fahrenheit body temperature, then you would send a question, a query it was called, back to the physician's office and say, and thus in such a date, for thus and such a patient, you know, um, identifier, not name, right? Because it's anonymous. Uh, you listed a, you know, body temperature is 37 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, please confirm or correct, right? And so that entire process would take months, literally months. Uh, a completely manual process. Uh, an intensively manual process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, Dr. Bleichert experienced this and it drove him nuts, right? So, I mean, I call him Paul when I'm not talking about him in a podcast, but, you know, it's, uh, he really believed uh, along with, um, you know, a friend of his was more uh, more of a, a software technology guy that this could be improved, right? So even in the early days of phase forward and what became known as electronic data capture software, a couple of things happened. One was you had the ability to enter the information directly into the computer system at the point of care or near the point and time of care. And then we could also do um, some of these logic checks at the browser level before you even submit to the database. So you put in 37 degrees and you click Fahrenheit and the system can go, wait, are you sure? And so, you know, really, and then the person typing, go, oh, of course not. And they change it to Celsius. So that really had the potential to accelerate access to the data of what was happening during the patient visits. And, you know, when done correctly, that's going to provide you with a tremendous number of opportunities for operational efficiency, advantage, but even things like health and safety, right? Imagine if you were testing a new drug and it's just intolerable uh, for humans. The side effects are... Um, too uncomfortable or even too dangerous or even too deadly, knowing that moments earlier can really, you know, help you walk away from things that are damaging or harming or, you know, even killing patient so, volunteers or drugs that just aren't going to make it, that the, you know, efficacy isn't there. So, you know, if we think about it then, right, phase forward is at the, was at the leading edge of, you know, what became electronic data capture. You know, I think Oracle was already in the business or was already serving Biopharma. I, I can't remember when they bought Siebel, uh, which I think is kind of how they got into it. You know, what, what were what kind of services did, you know, companies like that provide? Yeah, great question. So um, even before Siebel CTMS, which is clinical trial management software, which is 
the operational software for the management of these processes. Um, Oracle has a product called Oracle Clinical. And so the CDMS that we talked about, the clinical data management software, uh, into which you'd be doing the double data entry and in which you'd be doing the the logic checks and then using that to send messages back to the research sites. The two largest of those were Oracle Clinical and a product called ClinTrial. And uh, and ClinTrial was from a company called ClinSoft, which was one of the first acquisitions that Phase Forward made. And Oracle Clinical was Oracle. Uh, but because Phase Forward bought ClinSoft and then Oracle bought Phase Forward, Oracle ended up getting ClinTrial, which means the two most broadly installed on-premise clinical data management software systems that really are still in use, uh, both belong to Oracle in the health sciences portfolio. Now, Oracle did have something called Oracle Clinical RDC, remote data capture. And the idea there was to give a web-based front end directly into the Oracle Clinical software uh, in order to provide an electronic data capture solution. And if you had Oracle Clinical, which roughly half the industry did, they offered RDC for free. And it still didn't penetrate. Um, it just, it you know, it was offered, but it wasn't really designed with product management discipline and product marketing discipline of really understanding, um, you know, the use cases and the use patterns, workflow, data flow, uh, and activity prompts. So that's why, uh, you know, Oracle went 10 years later, 12 years later, uh, looking for making an EDC acquisition, even though they still had Oracle Clinical RDC. So right around 2000, I, I mean, I could go on, Charles, right? The, yeah. These were very interesting years. Stop me if you want to ask me a different question. But right around the turn of the millennium, Phase Forward Metadata and a company called DataTrack, which is still around, were really the three front runners. And, uh, you know, DataTrack uh, lost a few key head-to-head -head contracts, and that really gave Phase Forward and Metadata you know, the advantage to move ahead. Other players came in later. Viva's a relatively late entrant that has, you know, built up a book of business. Metadata has been bought by Dassault. But when Oracle bought um, Phase Forward in 2010, Phase Forward had the largest installed base of EDC clinical, you know, of clinical trials running EDC with a product called Inform. Metadata was number two. During the uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt that can come with an acquisition, Medidata did a very good job of growing their market share, took over the first position, and they they do still have it with their with their Rave EDC product. So I don't have exactly recent data, but Rave uh, with Medidata Decil and Inform, which is part of Oracle Health Sciences, uh, are still the two largest. Viva Vault EDC from Viva has been growing very quickly. And you don't want to count out um, incumbents like uh, Clario and Calix that have been around for a long time, although with uh, different names. So. so when we think about, you know, EDC obviously kind of changes the industry and it, it, it seems pretty transformative. Uh, but when we think about other solutions that have come into the market that are now core to how clinical trials are run, you know, it seems like a lot of them were just, you know, digitizing, you know, you know, paper-based sort of analogs, right? And we have e-versions of, you know, patient report outcomes, e-versions of clinical outcomes assessments, you know, we call e-pro, e-co, you know, so mm -hmm. these e-acronyms, you know, added to these, uh, you know, what were, you know, paper-based manual processes, you know, EDC seems like a real innovation because, you know, we're, we're leveraging the, the power of the technology. Uh, you know, what were, were there other kind of big innovations during this period? You know, called the the two thousands two thousand tens, you know that you know kind of came here into the market that, you know you you find pretty interesting. Yeah, thanks, Charles. So you know, first of all, yes, right. If you think about the core processes of pharmaceutical development and and you know uh, clinical trials as a subset of pharmaceutical development, in the clinical trial processes, depending on how you you split it up, it's thirty. 33, 35, 37 different core processes. And EDC obviously doesn't um, enable or electronify all of them. Another technology that uh, saw a lot of growth and had significant impact on the way clinical trials were conducted in the early part of this century uh, was IRT, interactive response technologies. So 
IRT itself has been around for a very long time. I mean, you know, in the 1970s, you could call your bank and get a, you know, press one for savings, press two for checking. Um, But to move that onto computers and onto the web and into the cloud really opened up a, a tremendous number of use cases. And even things like electronic clinical outcomes assessments or electronic patient reported outcomes uh, and things like that, uh, handheld diaries, many of those were enabled by the progress that was made 15, 20 years ago in interactive response technologies in general. Because EDC at its core consists of collecting clinical data, clinical meaning about humans, about the patients, but it's all clinician provided data. And so in any clinical trial, there are multiple other data sources, whether those are labs or um, imaging or patients filling out pain surveys or parents making observations about their children's behavior. There are many other sources that are not collected by and provided by the clinician. You know, today, how how much do you see the dependence on, you know, what is now less more uh, patient-facing technologies. I, I would imagine, you know, we think about the last five, 10 years and, you know, this whole movement in, um, you know, digital health and, you know, consumer kind of more directed technologies kind of connecting consumers and healthcare. I would imagine a lot of that is really applicable in the clinical trial space. You know, wh- what are you seeing in, in terms of that? Like uh, if we're thinking about IRTC, you know, how, how is that developed now? You know, I'd imagine we can, you know, app-based kind of programs, you know, deliver to patients and, you know, they can kind of do all that entry into it, into their phone. You know, what what are we seeing in terms of that? Yeah, yeah. It's another great question. We undeniably have seen over the last 20 years that the number of data sources has proliferated tremendously and the just sheer amount of data that we're collecting for you know any given average clinical trial has multiplied tremendously. It's about sevenfold the amount of data that we collect now compared to the amount of data that we used to collect. And as you and I you know had a chance to talk about in a different session, um, oddly, it hasn't really made us seven times faster or more effective or better. And so there's there's opportunities there that we can we can talk about in an, in another moment or thread. But the patient facing technologies, it's been very interesting because in the early days of this, you would provision a handheld device that you would send to the patient. Well, now everybody has a handheld device and they want to use their own. This is also true for clinicians. This is also true for really everybody who's involved. They want to bring their own device and use the one with which they're familiar. And so uh, user interfaces, patient interfaces, workflow in the patient experience have really come to the forefront, right? Because it needs to be easy, but it also needs to be something that patients are going to be willing to do over the long run. You know, recruitment of suitable patients for the study of any particular clinical trial, given its phase and the the therapy that's being studied, recruitment is challenging. It's gotten more challenging over the decades and retention is challenging. And as patient behavior evolves more broadly, especially in the United States and Western Europe, but elsewhere as well, into consumer-like behavior, then patients that are participating in clinical trials have higher expectations and lower tolerance for the curation of their experience as they try to participate in helping to study these therapies. You know, that's Which I think is good. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you bring that up, and and that's kind of what I was getting to. But I think a lot of times when investors are looking at some of these companies, you know, they focus on, you know, the the core technology. But you know, a lot of times it's you know uh, what part of the market are they going after? What type of pharma companies are they targeting? And you know, the the companies themselves talk about you know, the, the patient experience, the user experience. And I think a lot of times investors discount that a little bit and they don't, because, you know, we, we all have these handle devices and, you know, we, we look at apps and, you know, maybe think that, you know, what is the difference between one app versus the other? But, you know, from what you're saying, it, it seems like that user experience, patient experience, clinician experience, you know, do you find that that ends up being a real differentiator, you know, when, you know, contracts are being decided, kind of head-to-head comparisons. You know, how, how does pharma 
look at it, or, or does or, or does pharma not yet pay as much attention to that? That is a great question, uh, and it's you know it's got a lot of parts to it. So, yes, pharma is looking at patient experience, clinician experience, ease of use, repeatability, reproducibility as they need to, but. It's happening right now sort of by proxy in two ways. One is that often, certainly not always, but often, even if the biopharmaceutical sponsor has uh, an enterprise contract with a major EDC provider, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be picking and choosing every supporting technology package. And so your platform players like Oracle or Viva that offer a lot of these things, don't necessarily offer everything. And even if they offer you know, something like IRT, you may have a specific use case or need where your contract research organization is going to be advocating to say, you know, we need something really you know, focused or really excellent in this particular space. And so the CROs often are leading the vetting and selection, especially of the smaller you know, more point solution players. But when I say by proxy in two ways, one is that the CROs are doing this for the biopharmaceutical sponsors in many, certainly not all, but many situations. But the other thing is, it's pretty hard for a senior vice president of clinical operations to figure out whether, you know, every particular app that's going to go on every particular device is something that people are going to be happy to use. And so the proxy there is really customer success. And even though I believe very strongly in the philosophies of customer success, uh, you, you know, 22, 23 years ago, customer success wasn't a thing except maybe sometimes a, a new name for the help desk. And so when I say customer success, what I'm talking about is demonstrated, measurable, post-delivery operational success with the use of the technology asset. And so even if they don't know exactly why the sponsors and the CROs undeniably are putting effort into track record, reputation, and posture of customer success. Is this a trusted pair of hands that is going to make me successful? Now, if you're a technology and service provider, one of the ways that you do that is by making your user interface easy to learn and use. But the customers in their buying journey are not playing with the user interface as much as they're talking with their colleagues or other patients or reading industry reviews and articles about whether or not you are a trusted pair of hands. And part of that, I mean, every market is price sensitive. I'm not saying it's not a price sensitive market, but if you consider the roughly $3 billion that is um, center watch at Tufts is their current estimate for about how much money you'll spend bringing a new drug to market and selling it all the way through the end of its patent life. Uh, the technology spend on that $3 billion is big if you're a software company, but it's small if you're dividing it by $3 billion. And so you're not going to try to pinch your pennies on your technology and service providers as much as you're going to try to make sure that you're working with a trusted pair of hands that is going to make you successful. It's interesting, and I know we're going to talk about DCT in a second. Uh, maybe we can kind of jump there a little bit, right? You know, we just put out a survey this morning uh, for those listening. It's uh, early in early February. You know that, and one of the things that uh, we asked about was, um, you know, expectations for DCT usage, et cetera. By far, you know, everyone expected the number of trials to be conducted through DCT to nearly double in the next three to five years. Uh, the amount of spend uh, committed to DCT to, you know, grow by you know, roughly 50% uh, in the same span of time. Uh, but the interesting thing that jumped out was that two-thirds of respondents said, you know, they were looking to their to traditional CROs to help implement that mm -hmm. uh, versus going to, uh, you know, uh, dedicated DCT players in the market. And, and it kind of uh, jives with what you're saying in that, you know, they're, they're looking, they, you know, they can't, uh, vet all these opportunities or, you know, platforms themselves. So it seems like they're relying on their CRO partners to, to do that work for them. Uh, does that make sense? And Or is it that you think that a lot of CROs are developing these capabilities? I know PBD talks a lot about it. So does Acuvia. Um, you know, where, where do you see them in that, you know, in that process of having that capability versus their, you know, what, they're, what they've traditionally done, I guess? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, top of market in biopharmaceutical companies, top 20, maybe even the top 50, often they're going to negotiate enterprise level contracts with their technology providers. And then they're going to tell their contract research organization partners, this is our technology package. And the CROs are going to say, okay, because that's the business that they're in. But there's a tremendous portion of the market where the biopharmaceutical sponsor enters the process relatively technology agnostic, and they just want the CROs to make it happen and make it happen effectively. And they'll invite or allow the CROs to select the technology package. This is the rationale for some CROs trying to bring some of these technologies to market in a you know classic for, uh, horizontal integration play. Um, historically, over the last 25 years, that has had flashes of success, but mostly has been you know disastrous investments where money and people, uh, money and jobs get lost um, because providing technology in this market is very different than providing service in this market. And the same goes on the flip side. I mean, there are uh, software and service companies that have tried to provide tried to provide clinical services. Again, some flashes of success, but mostly uh, each side of that uh, has discovered, you know, how easy their their partners make it look, and that maybe it's not uh, it's not as transferable as the other business that you're in. But the other thing that's happening is that there are so many different technologies that are available, and so you can't really pick a technology package without having an execution plan for the clinical trial. And you can't really have an execution plan for the clinical trial without doing some detailed planning. And so it's natural for the CROs to be involved in at least influencing the selection of the technology packages. The other thing that happens, Charles, is that even with these enterprise level contracts, the length of those contracts tends not to line up exactly with the duration of any given clinical trial. And although I have seen clinical trials moved from one technology package to another uh, for reason, it's extremely rare. And so what's much more common is if you're a GlaxoSmithKline or a Pfizer or a Merck, you're starting 300 to 350 new clinical trials every year, your new starts are going to be in whatever your preferred provider platform is now. But you're going to be continuing to run ones that you've started at other times that may be on other vendors' technologies or on older versions of your current vendors' technology. And there tends to be an attitude in pharma that if it's working, you know, we're not going to upgrade it. We're not going to migrate it. We're not going to change it. We're going to run it out where it is. And so you get these proliferations of vendors, technologies, and versions uh, really in everybody's shop. And that complexity is part of what the CROs help you to manage. You know, what, then if we think about new entrants in the market and, you know, maybe in this aspect, I'm thinking companies like, you know, Science37, Medible, you know, Thread and others who are trying to enter this, what, what, how do you, how do you demonstrate customer success? I mean, obviously they've, they've now started to show repeated, you know, bookings with existing clients. And I, and I guess that would be a good sign, but, you know, if you're, if you're coming new to this market with a technology package, you know, plus service, you know, what is, what is the best way to, to convince a large pharma company to to take that risk? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's fun for me because I do sometimes have an opportunity to advise, uh, I'll say point solution or, or niche players on how to sell against the platforms, but also how to advise the platforms how to sell against the, the point solution players, right? So, you know, if you're a Science37, if you're a Medible, a caster is another good example, right? You have good software, you have good technology package, you've gone out and hired a bunch of industry veterans whom we all know, who you know have companies and their resumes just like I have on mine, right? And you're going to go in there and you're going to try to demonstrate that you have the people who have the perspective and the knowledge to really understand what you as a biopharmaceutical sponsor of a clinical trial program are trying to do, right? And so you one of the reasons why you hire veterans in this market is because this stuff is complicated and veterans know what they're doing, but also because then those relationships accrue and they come with them and they go, oh, well, I don't know much about Medible, but wait, I know that, I know that woman and that woman and that guy. And so, you know, maybe they're onto something here. But the next thing you have to do is really go for that tip of the spear maneuver, right? If you're selling mid-market or if you're selling um, a little bit down market, 
Uh, you know, you may want to be starting with the CROs and try to get partnerships in place with the CROs um, and really have a very clear message as to what differentiates you from one of the you know incumbent platform players like an Oracle or a Viva or a Metadata who do have a lot of these same capabilities to conduct some assessments and gathering of data outside of the you know the physical office, right? So we said DCT, we kind of jumped right into it. We didn't really define it, you know. Um, digital clinical trials, distributed clinical trials, uh, remote clinical trials. There are all sorts of different terms all around centered around the idea that maybe there's even more that we can do outside of a hospital or clinical setting than we've been doing historically. And from one point of view, that's always been true, right? People have been taking their pain surveys or you know writing in their medication logs from their houses. But the pandemic, as you uh, indicated in the introduction, has inspired people to look at other places where this technology could be applied. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of growth in things happening outside of the clinic walls. And that's the opportunity that, you know, Medable and Castor are trying to seize. So you have to talk to a sponsor and say, you know, look, you're running Rave. You've been running Rave for years. Rave is great at what Rave does, but the world is changing. Your patients don't want to come into the clinic, you know, pick one trial or pick one clinical program. I want to show you what I've built. And I want to show you what the people whom I've hired, many of whom you already know, know how to do with our next generation modern technology, right? And a lot of times in in this moment in a sales cycle, I'll go, hey, there's a reason why the internet is faster in Bucharest than in London, because <laughs> it was built later, right? So, yeah. you know, um, so let me show you what I've built. Let me show you what I have here to offer you. And then the other advantage to that, Charles, is that the proliferation of biopharmaceutical companies being responsible for the book of business of clinical research worldwide is just staggering. Um, I forget the exact numbers, but maybe six to 10 times the number of companies now are responsible for the top 50% or 80% numbers of clinical trials being run worldwide. And so there's less consolidation in the book of business of clinical research, which means that smaller biopharmaceutical sponsors, again, tend to have more flexibility for experimenting with different technologies or taking their CROs technology recommendations. How much then has the, you know, the FDA's guidance, you know, particularly around diversity, changed how uh, sponsors are thinking about this, right? Because you look at the data, right? You know, only maybe was it two percent of eligible people participate in trials. You know, they're predominantly you know affluent and uh, you know Caucasian. Um, you know, FDA is saying, hey, look, you know, we need your trials to be more representative of the patient population you intend to treat, and you know that kind of paves the way for more uh, you know decentralizing this process and moving away from this uh, site-based model. It does seem, it seems like that's why sponsors are kind of thinking about that. I mean, it, it seems like a driving force. Is that what you're hearing in discussions when you talk to drug companies about how they're, how they're thinking about things? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. And what's very exciting about this is that diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly in the business world is something that people intellectually have known or thought about or talked about as being probably a good thing to which we're not paying enough attention for decades. But we now have a generation moving into leadership positions that genuinely believes that, that genuinely believes that it is a disservice and it is inequitable and it is even immoral to have soft differentiation of access to good healthcare, good clinical research about healthcare. So when you look at the history of redlining, to be blunt, and you know systematic disinvestment in certain neighborhoods and the populations that live in them, and investment in other neighborhoods and the populations that live in them, and you look at the research that's been done and is being done about the social determinants of health, most major research hospitals are not in those disinvested neighborhoods. And so this model in which we expect and ask that the patients will come to us, meaning they'll see our advertisements, they'll trust us, they'll choose to come to us, they have the resources or the flexibility of job or the, the habits of, of you know, travel and mobility 
to be able to come to us. You know, not through anything perhaps nefarious or deliberate, but as a systematic result of these other inequities, you're going to get mostly white affluent patients. And in many cases, mostly male patients. So there's a tremendous number of medicines that are prescribed for women that were never tested on women because they were just tested on men. Now that's not happening anymore, but it happened for years, right? And so with a generation that understands that and believes that, with access to technology, that means that there's more that we can do outside of the clinic. And with the the war for having enough patients that have the right profile to be acceptable subjects to participate in our testing. You know, these are all factors that are going to move us toward a more conscious and conscientious and hopefully effective diversification of clinical trial participants. And and the other the exception to this um, is phase one. So, you know, depending on how much our listeners know about um, the phases of clinical trials, a phase one clinical trial for the testing of a new drug is really just designed to determine whether it is safe and tolerable. It has nothing to do whether it has therapeutic benefits. And so because we think it's probably going to be okay, but because there could be some really uncomfortable or even dangerous or deadly side effects, uh, phase one participants usually are paid. And guess what? Most phase one clinics are in those disinvested neighborhoods that we talked about. So, you know, if you start opening your eyes and looking for it, the inequity is everywhere. And it's devastatingly tragic and, you know, for me, infuriating. Um, So it's not something that we can fix overnight, but it is something that these technologies, but also an awareness of these problems, right? You, um, it's very hard to hit a target you're not aiming for. So I think I think that Charles, your your question is very prescient, and I think it's it's really interesting that things are moving in that direction. Maybe then talk about, you know, if we think about the technologies that exist today, you know, what what are some of the limitations? You know, you know, if we think about where we want to go, uh, in terms of how to improve access for clinical trials, or even you know beyond that, just to more efficiently run clinical trials to be more effective, right? To bring that $3 billion cost down uh, to some degree. Because to me, it sounds like, I mean, I remember when that number was a billion. That wasn't that much longer. <laughs> it wasn't right? that long ago. <laughs> right, and uh, exactly. And I, I forget the exact number, right? For every day, you know, it, it's you know millions of dollars um, if you have delays, right? So, you know, obviously pharma looks at that and they're trying to manage that. What technologies are not available today that you think is necessary? Or, you know, what, what kind of technologies that, uh, you know, what is missing that, yeah. it, that we still are sitting at $3 billion, It's uh, It's, it's, it's a great question, Charles. And there are some technology ideas that I do want to talk about. But before I do, let me address sort of that one, you know, billion ballooning to $3 billion situation. So a couple of things, right? You know, 20 years ago, we were trying to sell this and we'd go, listen, you know, for a blockbuster drug, every day of patent protected sales you know, is a million dollars a day and you have to get your drug to market sooner. Most pharmaceutical development has moved toward drugs for smaller patient populations. So that generally isn't true anymore. But even if it were, that's actually not the big bet, in my opinion, on the 3 billion, right? Because we still have 90, 92, 93, 95 drugs that come out of the lab and start being tested in humans that never make it across the finish line for the three or five or seven that do. And so failing faster is a tremendous, you know, failing faster is not proper English, but it's what we always say, failing more quickly, right? Or faster failure, I guess would be, you know, pairing adjectives and nouns and verbs and adverbs correctly. But that is one of the big bets that we have in order to bring down that $3 billion is if every one of our investigational new drugs that is not going to make it across the finish line were abandoned a month earlier or two months earlier or three months earlier, then in addition to all of those patients that weren't given something that was potentially harmful, that was not adequately therapeutically beneficial, we're also going to save a ton of money. 
And that $3 billion includes the loaded costs of the things we try that don't work. Now, this is science. If everything we try doesn't work, we're not trying enough things. But you know, if we can fail more quickly, we can begin to change the economics of that. To me, the second opportunity to change the economics of it is we've all gotten very excited about all of the new capabilities that we have. And so as we've talked about before, we're now collecting seven times as much data as we once did from innumerable additional data sources like wearables that we didn't used to have. But it hasn't really made us that much faster at getting new medicines approved, and it hasn't made us that much faster at walking away from the ones that need to be you know, canceled or abandoned. And so using more data science discipline to stop collecting what we're not really using and using more data science discipline to perform meaningful, rigorous, rapid, adaptive analysis of the information that we are collecting. You know, we need to not necessarily collect less data, but make sure that the data we are collecting is being put to good use quickly. And if it's not, than asking ourselves and each other why we're burdening the system with collecting it. When you're looking at trials and the the data requirements in the protocol, you know how 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 much of the data that you looked at is being collected? Do you think, on average, is you know not really useful? It's just being collected because it's always been collected. That's a great question. I am probably not as well qualified as many other people that I know to answer it. But if I had to guess, it's at least 20% and it may be as much as 50%. Because just as with full-blown monitoring versus risk-based monitoring, monitoring is when you uh, check to make sure that the information that's been reported to the pharmaceutical company matches the information in the patient's chart, right? That the, the that people aren't either making mistakes or deliberately lying to the pharmaceutical company, right? That's what, when I talk about monitoring, that's what I'm talking about. For decades, we checked everything, everything by hand on site. And we started applying some statistics to it and saying, you know, maybe we don't need to check everything. Maybe we just need to check the most important things. Well, some of the things that we're collecting aren't important enough to check. How important are they really? Right. So yeah. I think I think it's it's a really interesting question. And I think it bears some closer look. And this is an area, right? So I promise I'd get back to technology, right? This is an area where machine learning. I mean, artificial intelligence is a very, very broad term, right? And so I try to tend to be more specific, right? But using machine learning engines uh, along with knowledgeable and capable data science professionals to really assess the usefulness and the meaning and the actionability of the data that we are collecting or the extraordinary quantities of data that we already have collected, there are insights in the data that we've already collected. This is what people talk about when they talk about virtual clinical trials. You know, it's not talking about having people do everything from home. It's talking about, wait a minute, we already have a lot of data. We probably, you know, people talk about digital twins and virtual control groups. We have a lot of data and there are more things that we could do with the data that we already have that could accelerate the process, lower cost, reduce the burden that we place on patient volunteers. You know, that's patients who participate in clinical trials are putting themselves in harm's way for science. And uh, the great Steve Rosenberg, one of my great career mentors, he talks about this from the podium, but not enough people do, right? These are people who are putting themselves in harm's way for science. And I think that we could do a better job of respecting that and of utilizing it responsibly, you know, with, uh, with deliberate use of the risk that they that they choose to accept. You know, just before we get to, you know, you said there's some new technology ideas that you had. You know, you, you kind of briefly mentioned it, you know, if we wanted to create, let's say, synthetic control arms, mm-hmm. you know, using, you know, mining clinical data out of, you know, EHRs for patients who have, you know, tried a therapy, right? How, how much is that actually being done today? I, you know, we hear a lot of companies talk about it, certainly the companies that sit on all this, you know, clinical data, you know, talk about, you know, how they're going to monetize that, sell that to, to pharma. But at this point, how, how often is that being used? And, and, and if not, not much, why, why isn't it being used more? Because it, it seems a very obvious use case. Yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, we've said for decades that um, if a hospital is using electronic health record and we've got a computer screen 
on a laptop that's sitting next to physically the laptop in which the health record is being entered, you know, maybe there's something other than what we call swivel chair integration, where you type into one keyboard and then you turn your chair and you type into the other keyboard. You know, we've been saying that for a long time. The The challenges are in the complexity, the variability of that complexity, and then both the real and perceived fears and risks of regulatory compliance. All of those challenges are surmountable, but it means that it's not easy to just sort of snap your fingers and do. Uh, to answer your question more specifically, are we seeing digital twins and virtual control arms? Yes, absolutely we are. Are we seeing them in droves? Not yet. You know, some markets that have centralized uh, uh, health insurance, right? Like, uh, like Britain, uh, for example, you know, or if you look at the Department of Defense, right, you're starting to see that, you know, these are organizations that have healthcare data and also are conducting clinical trials, right? They, they own both sides of that transaction. And so that's where we're seeing this experimented with it. First, you have to follow HIPAA and, you know, depersonalize the data. But there are some really interesting and exciting things that are happening. I, um, you know, I don't want to praise any one particular company or technology more than another, but I got to tell you, you know, IQVIA has the undiagnosed patient finder. Have you seen this? Have you had them demonstrate it? You know, they, they look at, this is machine learning, right? They look at the diagnostic journey of patients that eventually are prescribed or, or diagnosed rather with a relatively uncommon disease, a rare disease, and given medication, and they see therapeutic benefit. And then they look for other patients that appear to not yet be by diagnosed, but are on a similar enough diagnostic journey where they're reporting the same kinds of symptoms, they're trying the same kinds of medications, they're getting the same kinds of tests and procedures. And then they can send a message that says, hey, you know, it's all depersonalized, so we don't really know who it is, but we suspect that you may have a patient in your care who is, you know, 53 years of age, Caucasian male, whom we suggest you test for thus and such rare disease. I mean, like, how cool is that? It is, yeah. Right? So, you know, the idea of machine learning is to be trained on patterns, and use those pattern, you know, to be trained on an extraordinary number of samples, actually, so that the computer systems themselves determine the patterns, and then attempt to apply those patterns to new data, right? That's the concept of machine learning. Speaking of machine learning, I don't know how long this podcast will sort of survive in the, you know, for the future, right? But you know, the uh, the chatbot that everybody's playing with, uh, chatbot AI, if you ask it about the future of clinical trials, do you actually get a nice little summary about what's happening with DCT? It's actually pretty impressive. <laughs> the, uh, so, the chat GPT is that what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, chat GPT, that's what it's called. I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. Yeah, ask chat GPT about, you know, what we're going to see in, uh, in clinical trials in the next five to 10 years. Interesting. Um, yeah, but don't stop booking with me, right? Just because I, I put you onto that. So, well, so you know, maybe just to, to then wrap up, uh, I guess here, maybe what are some of the, the technology ideas that you would like to see uh, come into 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 the clinical research area? Yeah, I would like to see more attention paid to the patient experience and the patient journey, in order to keep patients even more informed and feeling connected to the science that they're trying to advance and to know what now, what next, what to watch out for, you know, why they're being asked to answer these questions over and over and over again, and really just curate that experience. I would like to see technology and machine learning applied to identifying an appropriate population of diverse patients that fit the various inclusion and exclusion criteria to participate in clinical research. This is an area where I think diversity in patient participation can really be amped up by the appropriate application of technology. And I would like to see technology used to sift through all the data that we're collecting and figure out whether we really need to collect all of it and make more meaningful action-oriented use of the data that we already have collected. 
I guess um, just to close up and uh, when you talk about these ideas, is this technology that needs to still be created? Or because it sounds kind of sounds like these are technologies that exist today; they just have not yet been really applied in clinical research. Yeah, I think it's more the latter, right? And you know, it's not directly what you asked, but it, it reminds me of the hashtag, you know, no going back. That's really, really popular in pharma and in the CRO world right now. And what that means is we had access to a tremendous number of these technologies for a very long time, and they weren't really adopted with accelerated enthusiasm. Um, Biopharma tends to be a technology uh, lagging industry because of its conservatism. And that's okay, right? We're playing with people's lives. A certain amount of caution is appropriate, right? But we have... Uh, you know, tremendous portion of the workforce that are digital natives. And so the idea that we did some of these things these ways because of COVID, and as we move out of pandemic status into endemic status, we can make all the patients come back into the clinics now. Um, There's very little appetite for that in most of the mid-level management and individual contributor leadership and participation throughout the biopharmaceutical industry. And so you'll see these hashtags now going back, meaning like, you know, just because the, you know, the clinics are open again, doesn't mean that you have to come in to fill out your pain survey. That doesn't make any sense. So That's actually probably a good sign that uh, for technology uh, being deployed in greater, in greater frequency and, uh, and, and more, you know, interesting types of uh, trials going forward then it seems. Yeah. You know, Charles, it's really interesting, right? Because it was a big thing, in the early 2000s that a tremendous number of people had more advanced technology at their homes than in their offices and in their pockets than in their offices. And that was kind of sort of tolerated for a while. And then the impatience with it and the unwillingness to continue to tolerate it really separated out by industry vertical. Um, but, you know, pharma's coming around, right? I mean, the people aren't going to accept clunky old technology that may have been developed before they were even born as, uh, you know, as the next generations enter the workforce. And I think yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. But like any tool, you know, it's a tool, right? Uh, what we do with it is what matters. Right. Well, you know, David, I, you know, I know we can just keep talking about this forever, um, but, uh, you know, wanted to close it out here and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of great ideas and thoughts here and really appreciate all, all your insight here. And, uh, you know, uh, would love to have you back in the future and see, you know, how the world progresses, but uh, you just wanted to thank you uh, for, for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Charles. I, I always enjoy it. You always, uh, you always come ready and have uh, have a lot of great questions for me, and it's always a great conversation. I appreciate your time. And, uh, I appreciate that as well. And I uh, want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in to uh, this podcast and uh, look forward to having you join us on future ones. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.